Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me uh, this morning to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 5. <clears throat> if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can certainly follow along with the words that you'll see on your screen. We have uh, begun a study in this uh, wonderful book of the Old Testament. We are now in week 5, chapter 5, week 5. And um, just by way of introduction, before I read our uh, passage this morning, as we come uh, to this point in the book, uh, time has significantly slowed down. And what I mean by that is chapters one through three take place over the course of about nine years. And these few chapters that we're going to engage now uh, really are happening over the course of just two days. And so time has slowed down, and you might remember those of you who have been listening, uh, where we are uh, in the story, Mordecai and the Jews, uh, all the Jews that he can find, are fasting. Esther and all of her attendants are fasting. And they're fasting in dependence and urgency upon Yahweh because they are preparing Esther for a significant risk. She's going to go into the king and she's going to beg and she's going to plead for the sake of her people against this evil plot that Haman has put together and is planning to implement in a matter of months. But that request, that begging and pleading requires that she enter the king's presence uninvited. This morning's passage is a long one. Um, I didn't see any other way to to break it up. I kind of wanted to take this big chunk together, and so bear with me. Uh, This is a a passage that consists of essentially three scenes, and at at, at the center of each scene, is a, is a character. And so five, uh, chapter five, verses one through eight, uh, at the center is Esther. Verses nine through 14, at the center is Haman. And then chapter six, uh, the center character is the king. Now just before I read this, I want to make clear uh, that I don't wanna focus on these characters. That's what's natural for us to do, um, is to think about the characters Um, We're going to talk a little bit about them, obviously, and what they do and what they're doing and not doing, but we did that a bit last week when we talked about Mordecai and we talked about Esther and we talked about Esther's risk-taking and Mordecai's pondering of providence and his trust in the Lord, and and, and today I want to take, I want to view all this from a different angle. What I want to do today is I want to focus on the God who isn't mentioned at all, but is clearly there. And so listen as I read, again, a long passage. I'm gonna try to be as quick as I can uh, in reading it to you. Uh, Esther chapter five, beginning at verse one, and we'll read through the end of chapter six. On the third day, Esther put on the royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. 
And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. And so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther said, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther... Let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all the friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Well, this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse 
And he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, years ago, there was... a series of dark uh, children's novels that were written. A few of them were made into a movie, and they were novels about a bunch of kids that were swept up into a plot of conspiracy and mystery. And it's not the content of the books that, that I want to highlight. I actually don't recommend them. I haven't read them, but I, I don't recommend them anyway. But I simply want to focus on the title of the series, A series of unfortunate events. That's the name of the book series. Well, today as we return to Esther's story, we're going to see that that is not the title of Esther's life. Though it may seem so at times, nor is it the title of our lives. What happens in Esther's story, what happens in all of our stories could actually be called a series of fortunate events. A series of providential events that are building towards a goal, namely the preservation of a people and the glory of God himself. You see, this is how it is for the children of God. Because this is the character of our God. And so as we walk through this story this morning, I want us to focus on the God that we don't see, but who we know is there, who it's evident his power is at work. And so I've got three realities that I just want to set our hearts on as we retell this story this morning. Three things about our God, and they're all They're all S's. It just kind of fell out that way, conveniently so. And the first is this. He is, number one, a God of sometimes subtle sovereignty. He's a God of sovereignty, but he's a God of sometimes subtle sovereignty. Now, when I say that God is sovereign, I suspect a lot of my listeners know exactly what I'm saying, but I'm not assuming that everyone does. I'm simply stating that our God, the God that we worship, is Lord over all creation. He rules it. He controls it. And he does so not in an impersonal way, like a watch that he just winds and lets go, but in a very personal way. And he's Lord over creation, not just in the big things of the rise and falls of kings and the rise and falls of presidents in our day, but even in the subtlety of our desires. Let me explain 
what I mean. As we jump back into the story, Esther has made herself ready. And she's made herself ready, not seductively as a mistress, but she's made herself ready regally as royalty, as the queen. And the narrator narrator almost highlights this fact. He makes it clear that this is Queen Esther. And this is actually going to begin a pattern that we will see throughout the book. 37 times Esther is named in this account. 14 of those 37 times she is called Queen Esther. And 13 of those times will happen from here on out. Right? We started with Hadassah. She progressed to Esther. And now Queen Esther in all of her glory is coming out. And so Queen Esther presents herself uninvited to the king. Remember, this this is illegal. The first king risked her life by not appearing before King Ahasuerus when he requested that she come. The second queen, Queen Esther, is now seeking to appear before Queen Ahas- uh, King Ahasuerus when he, when he has not called her to come. And I want to just let that sink in and hang for just a moment. This is an anxious scene, verse 1. As she dressed in her royal robes, as she comes before the king. History tells us that some Persian kings, actually, they they would have the executioner on hand with an axe. And if his scepter didn't raise, the executioner would come into action. So Esther stands before the king, and here's the first subtle sovereignty Verse 2, she won favor in his sight. Now the verb may be active there, but we all know there's only so much that Esther could do. I mean, sure, Esther is intentional. Esther is calculated in her actions. And we'll see from here on out, she becomes increasingly shrewd. But the kind of favor that she receives here the kind of favor that she received on her first night with the king is ultimately out of her control. And we're reminded of Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And one wonders what went through King Ahasuerus' head when he saw uh, Esther. What seeds had she planted for him to be predisposed to not only accept her, but to show her favor? Right? The scepter is held out. She won't die. But not only that, he is going to lavish her. He knows that she didn't come to seduce him. She's not dressed for that. She risked her life, put on her royal robes because because she must have an important request. So he says, even up to half my kingdom. And many think that's not a literal promise, and yet it still is representative of the fact that he is predisposed to give her what she wants. But Esther waits. She waits to share her request because she wants to set the scene a little better. A feast with the architect of the evil scheme present 
And then another feast. Perhaps she wants to deepen the promise as King Ahasuerus repeats these words, I'll give you whatever you want. Just tell me what you need. She won favor in his sight. But there's another situation of subtle sovereignty that I I want us to see. And it's in the, the third scene of this passage. If you skip ahead to chapter 6, verse 1, we hear this phrase, the king could not sleep. Insomnia. Insomnia that prompts the reading of a history book because we all know that when you can't sleep, the best thing to do to get back to sleep is to pick up a history book, right? And read it. This was the official record of the kings of Persia. Perhaps uh, Ahasuerus was, was stroking his ego here. I mean, we all like to have our accomplishments read to us. And yet of all the time periods that his servants could read to him, what are read but the events of chapter 2. Remember chapter 2, verse 23? Mordecai had foiled this assassination plot. Nothing happens to him but it says in 2.23, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles. Well, let's stop right there. What a series of events, right? Two subtle phrases. She won his favor, and he couldn't sleep. And they point us to one profound truth. A truth that is the backbone of our experiences, good and bad, that subtle events sometimes, dreams, distractions, delays, even disappointments, create God appointed, God ordained appointments. You know, I had one a few weeks ago, and I want to share it with you. I dream a lot, but I forget most of my dreams. The ones I remember are confusing. I don't know what they mean, and they probably don't mean anything. So this doesn't happen to me very often, but last month, I vividly, vividly dreamt of a dear friend that I hadn't talked to in months and months. And in my dream, he was hurting. He was abusing substances and ultimately in my dream he died and I woke up and I and I was so burdened like where did that come from and it prompted me to call him and I got his voicemail I left a voicemail uh, the next day he didn't get back to me for uh, a week but when he got back to me do you know what he said to me when I asked how are you doing he said I need you to pray for me Nate I'm struggling I've been abusing alcohol. I've been abusing marijuana. And I said, what? I said, absolutely. What a sweet providence to be able to pray with and for him. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not making some big declaration about every dream that we have. I'm just saying that we serve and are loved by a God of subtle and sometimes not so subtle, sovereignty. And that we need to invite and recognize and give thanks for a God like that. 
A God who sometimes uses unexpected interruptions, frustration of sleepless nights, even dreams from time to time to accomplish his purposes. And so that's the first thing I want to see about God in this passage. And the second is this. He is a God of satisfying sufficiency. He's a God of sometimes subtle sovereignty, but he's also a God of satisfying sufficiency. Now I want to come uh, through the back door, so to speak, for you to see this. So I want us to focus in this point, in this section on scene two and the heart of of Haman. Look at verse nine, the beginning of verse nine with me if you have your Bibles. Um, It just begins, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. I mean, Haman, he is walking on sunshine. He's been invited to not one, but count them two royal feasts with the royal couple. He's rich. He's got a house full of kids, sons in particular, and he's on the fast track for promotions under King Ahasuerus. And so he'll make sure later that evening, as he walks on sunshine out of the first feast, he'll make sure that later that evening he assembles all of his friends and his family to recount all of this because he loves himself. And he loves what he's accomplished. And he craves the praise of of people. It's all about his glory. And you know, we might say if we were counseling Haman, biblically, that this is the idol of your heart. This is the idol of his heart. This is what he lives for. This is what he is willing to kill for. You see, there's a fly in his ointment, and his name is Mordecai the Jew, and the guy still won't bow to him. And and when our idols get challenged, nothing else seems to matter. And so as he walks out of the first scene, as he walks out of the first feast, Mordecai reverses his mood. And he's mad. And so the wisdom of the world coming from his wife and his friend says, well, enough is enough. Just take care of him. Funny enough, that's how we're in this whole predicament is he didn't want to just take care of him in the first place. He wanted to destroy his entire people. But he says, okay, I am going to take care of him and I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it big. I'm going to make it a public spectacle. And so he builds this enormous gallows, 75 feet high. Now, two things about these gallows. Number one, 75 feet high is not a normal height. He is really wanting to make a show of this. And these aren't gallows as we think of gallows with a rope hanging from this. This is more like an impaling pole, a gruesome way to execute someone. And that's what's going on in Haman. So what does this have to do with a God of sanctifying sufficiency? Well, last week we were challenged in part by Mordecai and by Esther and by their actions. Let's be challenged by Haman for a moment. You're not going to like me saying this, but we've all got a little bit of Haman in us. What I mean by that is that we were made made for one thing. And yet we spend our lives searching for something else in a million different other places. 
to quote a line from a great Rich Mullins song as he speaks to God. He says, I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. See, Haman's heart is a heart that isn't getting what it wants. Behind Haman's joy is a heart that's stuffing itself full of that which ultimately won't satisfy him. This week, my wife and I read together Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, David says, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And Pastor Paul Tripp writes about this verse. You know, I love Pastor Tripp. He says, this desire was designed to be the central motivating desire of every person created by God and made in his image. And it begs the question, what is your one thing? The one thing that your heart craves, that you think would change your life, that you look to for satisfaction, contentment, and peace. The one thing that fills your daydreams and commands your sleepy meditations. Is it approval? Is it accolades? Is it comfort? Is it control? Is it knowledge? Is it understanding? Is it achievement? Whatever is controlling your heart will control your lives. And so Haman, in kind of a backward sort of way, reminds us of our own hearts and points us to what our hearts need. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We serve a God, we worship a God of satisfying and sanctifying sufficiency. It's interesting to compare Haman's phrase in verse 13. If you have your Bibles there, he says, as recounting Mordecai not bowing, he says, yet all of this, all of all of the accomplishments, all of this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai sitting. You contrast that phrase with the testimony of Paul in Philippians 3.8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Haman couldn't see it. There was no one there to tell him, we must. We must see that our God is a God of satisfying, sanctifying sufficiency. Well, one final truth that I want to close with this morning, and it's this. Our God is a God of surprising and sure salvation. Our God is a God of surprising and sure salvation. One of my favorite movies is the movie Dunkirk, and Dunkirk is the retelling of the evacuation of Allied troops during World War II from the coast of France, it's a tense, suspenseful war movie with little dialogue, but throughout the movie, there's this ticking. Tick, 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 tick. 
As we, as we get to the point, this point in the story, that's what we hear in the background. Because time is running out, isn't it? Time's running out for the Jews, but more importantly, now with this new plot twist, time is running out for Mordecai. But there's good news. Because here come the boats coming across the English Channel to get the troops, and here comes the God of surprising salvation. And it begins with this reversal of fortune for Mordecai. We've already been reminded of Haman's disdain for Mordecai, a disdain that now has him plotting to execute him in a very public way in less than 24 hours. But chapter 6 provides the reader, especially the Jewish reader, with maybe One of the most comical, wonderful, sweet justice reversals in all of the Bible. The subtle sovereignty of insomnia and a history book have brought the unhonored Mordecai back to the forefront. And it was always in the best interest of a king to reward those who foiled assassination pots because it kept you alive longer. It encouraged that kind of thing. And so Ahasuerus is not pleased to learn that Mordecai's foiled plot hasn't even been recognized. And so he asked Jehemon a general policy question. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And so Haman, assuming it must be him, he gives his dream answer. An over-the-top recognition that would feed any idol of ego. But in this twist, dripping with irony. (laughs) Mordecai the mourner now becomes Mordecai the one the king delights to honor. And Haman the joyful now goes back to his home weeping the whole way. You see, brothers and sisters, something is afoot. Someone is on the move. Salvation is coming, and, 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 and Haman's family senses it. Verse 13 of chapter 6 is, is this great verse. If Mordecai, before you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Our God is a God of surprising and sure salvation, nothing will stop him. Nothing will stop his purposes and no one will separate us from his love. And that final proof will be shown generations and generations to come through the person of Jesus. As we close, I want to just focus your attention on one more phrase. Four words. The four words that began our passage. Chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day. You see, third days are important in the stories of God's people. On the third day is actually an important Jewish motif because the third day is the day of God's deliverance. And God's victory. Genesis 22.4 from the story of Abraham. God had told him to sacrifice his son in worship. But what happened? 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and what did he see? He saw a ram caught in the thicket that was the substitute. Surprising salvation for a son that pointed to a lamb that is still to come. Jonah 1.17, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Hosea 6, 1 and 2, come let us return to the Lord for he has torn us down that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may love before him. Well, brothers and sisters, you know where I'm headed, where all of Esther ultimately has pointed us week after week after week. Luke 24, 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day he should rise from the dead. This is our deliverance. This is the proof of our sure and surprising salvation. The sting of death is gone. The guilt of sin is gone. It is gone because Jesus has been raised on the third day. Brothers and sisters, worship with me. A God of subtle sovereignty. A God of sure but surprising salvation, a God who is ultimately sufficient for all our needs. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great account of your people and for what it shows us, not about them and their actions, for they're sinners just like us, but what it shows and reveals about who you are, about your character. Give us the grace to not only know these things intellectually, but to meditate on them in such a way that they change us, that they move us. How we're thankful for Jesus, that sure salvation come to us in the flesh, risen from the grave for us. May we be found in Him, that love that will not let us go. This I pray. In Jesus' great name, amen.